Thank you. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked about that last week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. We're in the next section, the third week in Luke, and the next section of Luke chapter 1. We were in the section that talked about John the Baptist coming, the birth of, or the, the pregnancy of Elizabeth with John the Baptist, and now we were in, we're, we're in that section that talks about the coming of John the Baptist's cousin, Jesus, the Son of God. In Mary's story, in Mary's story, we see that God does the most magnificent thing in the most modest of ways. He leverages and exalts the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Such are kingdom values. God needs neither trappings nor office to accomplish his work or his will. His people need no position and they need no title. God overturns the hierarchical conventions of culture and he accomplishes the improbable and even the impossible with the very least. God's riches are found in poverty. His strength is found in weakness. And the blessings of his rewards are discovered only when we share them. Luke introduces the upside-down kingdom. In, this, in his account of Mary, a nobody from nowhere with nothing to offer but faith. In the story of Mary, we find again ourselves Humble and poor, yet faith-filled, we cling to God's promises, and we dare to believe that He just might fulfill them. So no trappings or office are necessary or needed for faith, no might, power, or prestige, just simple love and humility and belief that God can do something with our nothing. The story of Mary and her nascent Messiah Start not in the holy place of the Jerusalem temple, but far north in a town not unlike Newton, in, of all places, Nazareth. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Said Nathaniel in John chapter 1, when told that he had to come and see this one who was most like the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. It was almost as if this was said to me about Newton. In my first month, it seemed as though one person after another needed to apologize for Newton. The Newton that was, but no longer is. The once bustling Maytag metropolis that employed and supported the community with countless benefits and intentional and generous philanthropy, Newton. Now, only Newton. Not Malibu or San Diego, but Newton. Not uh, Chicago, New York, or L.A., not Miami, Dallas, or Denver, not even Omaha or Des Moines, which is a long way from Malibu and San Diego, but just Newton. But you know, thankfully, God has a habit of choosing the most improbable people from the most unlikely places 
to fulfill his purposes. And it's as though Newton is experiencing the truth of Scripture, where it describes the cultural values of the kingdom of God when it says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows only from afar. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God opposes the proud, right? But he gives grace to the humble, right? The humble. And finally, in today's passage where Mary says this, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Could it be said that all of us right here and right now, that maybe we find ourselves like Mary, a nobody from nowhere with nothing to offer? Do we find ourselves here with nothing but maybe a humble faith? A faith that God delights to exalt a faith that God delights to use to accomplish his kingdom purposes, maybe maybe we're a lot like Mary. Maybe Newton is a lot like Nazareth. So let's look at the passage today in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, where we pick up from last week. And last week we remember that Elizabeth went into seclusion for how many months? Five five months, she secluded herself away in isolation. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, a bit player in Luke's first chapter. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her. Notice Where the angel goes, the angel went for Zechariah to the holy place. He was in a holy place, right? Zechariah was there offering sacrifice. But even in the holy place, who did he come to? This small town priest, right? This lowly character in Israel, even though it was in the temple and in the holy place, but now look who, he, look who God is uh, appearing to through the angel Gabriel, this little girl named Mary. I say little girl because she could have been as young as 12. She most absolutely wasn't older than 15. She's probably 13 or 14. She could have even been 12. So if those of you girls who are in here that are 12, 13, or 14... You're Mary's age. And you're probably doing your thing. Martin Luther wrote this, this whole little vignette. I wish I would have uh, copied it and brought it up with me. But he talked about how when the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary, he probably showed up while she was cleaning uh, and, or doing the dishes or, or, or gathering some stuff for the household. Because in the Old Testament, over and over, we see angels and we see messengers of God showing up where people are just doing their everyday thing, their normal stuff. The, the, the appearance to Zechariah, though it was in the temple, was an appearance to him 
doing what he normally did, offering sacrifice to God. The difference, the difference was where it was. The difference was that he was in a place that he's never going to be again, but he's doing the thing that he's always doing, offering sacrifice to the Lord. But he sends this angel to Nazareth, to this 12, 13, 14-year-old girl, probably near her residence, an out-of-the-way place, an out-of-the-way person. She had, she had no standing. She had, she had no honor except for the honor that God was about to give her. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary, as a, let's just say she's 14, as a 14-year-old girl, she's greatly troubled at his words and wonders, what kind of a greeting is this? I'm highly favored? The Lord is with me? Those are big words for a little girl. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. What I learned when I moved into Iowa from New York State, when I moved into farm country, when I moved to Sioux County, which is a lot of, a big beef producing county, and I I started to meet these farm families, they like talk about like reproductive stuff, just they just talk about it. Like in proper circles, we don't talk about these things. Hardly even when it's amongst our own families, right? You use certain terminology to couch things in. But here, you know, you got the kids running out to the barn to see such and such being born, right? Or they're walking out in the field with the two animals doing stuff so that such and such is born. And they see all this stuff and they talk about it. I mean, it's just, it's just part of life. And I would imagine that when the angel said to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son, it was language that she was not unfamiliar with. I mean, that a- animals conce- conceived and they gave birth to, to livestock and they lived in an agricultural society. So he's telling her, you, you, Mary, you're going to conceive, and you're going to give birth to a son, to which she thought, okay, well, someday I'm going to have a boy, except for the way he said it. The way he said it was like, you're going to conceive like right away, and she understood that. And then he said, you're to call him Jesus. So the name Jesus and the name Mary are very common back in that day. About a quarter of all the women walking around, their name was Mary. And it was Mary of such and such, or Mary of, you know, like in the Dutch community, they'll say, well, who are you of? The older Dutch folks, well, well, which family? Because there's the de Youngs. There's like 18 different de Young families in town, right? Well, which de Young are you from? Because it's a common name. Well, Mary was a common name. Jesus was a common name. So he's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, But Jesus was a common name. But he says, you're going to give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, I was with my grandson, Cash. Cash with a K. Everyone loves a little cash. So I was with little Cash last night. And, you know, all of our kids are like, they're pretty special, aren't they? But our grandkids, now there's perfection, right? until you see something different, then you just give them back to your kids, right? But for this, for, for Mary to hear these words from an angel saying that 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then in her mind is starting to register, wait, this is Messianic talk. This is Messiah talk here. This is the the Christ, the Anointed One type of talk. And I'm wondering what's going on inside of her. Like, is she getting nervous? Is it even starting to sink in? You know, when when you hear uh, big news about stuff, sometimes it takes a while for it to sink in. Uh, yesterday, I had news that my friend David has a daughter, Emily, who's 19, who they found out has bone cancer. And I, I looked at it, and I'm like, I mean, I have a 19-year-old, right? And that's serious. She could maybe lose part or most of her leg. And uh, it, it takes a while for news like that to sink in. Like, like the day we found out that the, that the World Trade Center was attacked. We were just three hours away, and I heard a plane hit the world. Oh, okay, so a plane, a little two-seater, you know, lost its direction, and bing, boom, down into the Hudson, and that was the end of it. Maybe a window was busted or something. Then, then the secretaries came in and said, no, 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 one of the buildings is down. One of the, what buildings? Well, one of the, one of the towers. It, it's not registering, right? You get... You just can't imagine how what they're saying could possibly be true. And I wonder if Mary, when she's standing there or sitting there, wherever she was, listening to the angel, is, is trying to tread water, trying to just keep her head above and keep the breath coming in to understand what, wait a minute, what are you saying to me? The Lord God, the Lord God, Jehovah, um, the Lord God, the two names for God, the full name for God, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So Mary's hearing these words. Now, if, for those of you who are moms, you could maybe understand this. I, I can't understand it. But if the doctor came in and told you right after your son was born, huh, you, you got a great son. I mean, his kingdom is never going to end. You know, I'm, what, what kind of talk is that? I mean, it, what, do you think, what does this boy think he's king of the world or something? Or do you think he's, you know, God most high? But this one actually was. He actually was. And this news was delivered to Mary, this little girl in this little out-of-the-way town who had no standing, no office, no crown, and she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. His kingdom will never end. Now, unlike Zechariah from last week, who said, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of it? Mary asks a question, but it's a different question. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Literally, in the Greek language, it's since I have not known a man. I have not been with a man. How, how will this happen? Not not, I don't believe it will happen, but how will it happen? So she's, she's kind of uh, throwing a softball to the angel. So now the angel gets to announce something that's revolutionary, that's never been heard before, that probably was never even considered by any mortal mind, but maybe some prophets of old might have imagined it within the prophecies, but maybe not. And so he says to her, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The Holy Spirit's going to be involved in this, Mary, and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
So, Mary, there's not going to be, you won't know a man for this conception to take place because this is going to be a son of God. So, I would think you would either feel really alone because when you have a baby, you know, in the traditional uh, process, there's another there with you. You know, a husband has a wife, or a wife has a husband, or a girlfriend has a boyfriend, or a boyfriend has a girlfriend. There's somebody else involved, right? There's two of you. It's not just one person. Was, she, was there a little bit of like, how, I, can't, how, I can't do this myself. I need a dad. I need, I need somebody around to help me with this, to take ownership of this, to be, that it can be ours. How? How does this work when God is the Father? Now, this passage is a holy passage. This isn't like back in the day when they had these pagan deities where it was like the ultimate thing was to do it with a God, right? It was, it was dirty, cheap tawdry. And it was, and it was a, a cultural thing in the day with pagan deities. Of course, it wasn't real because there's no such thing as a pagan deity, right? Because there's only one true God. But this, this is the holy union of deity and humanity, where deity meets humanity in a miraculous act and produces the God-man, Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing here that has never been done before. He says in verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail, and this word from God is not going to fail. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be the son of God. And of his kingdom there will be no end, and you get to be his mom. Good luck raising him. I mean, really, just imagine what Mary's going through. But here's the here's the. The the important thing here is that God came down to Mary. The symbolism, the lesson, the principle, the value, whatever you want to call it, God chose Mary, a nobody from nowhere with nothing to offer. She had nothing to offer. Well, one thing, faith. Faith. Look what she says. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. I'm, I'm willing to do this. Then the angel left her. Thanks for including that, Luke. We would have wondered what happened to the angel if you didn't tell us, right? And the angel left her. He left her, and she's left standing there contemplating being the mother of God. So in Catholicism, they venerate Mary to too high of a status. In Protestantism, there's often we, we, uh, um, we denigrate Mary, right? Too low, but we should neither venerate nor denigrate, but we should look here at a young girl, a young mother, full of faith, willing to step out and, and shoulder the burden of carrying the Messiah, See, God loves to do the impossible with the improbable, with the unlikely, with the out of the way. So when I was a kid, um, I had no standing. I had nothing. Uh, 
I lived in this little town. You wouldn't even have heard of it in New York State. Uh, hardly anybody ever heard of my town. There was, there was nothing there. My family had nothing. Uh, but I've enjoyed opportunities that God has given me. I've enjoyed opportunities. Wherever you came from, probably not much, right? Probably not much. But what has God given you opportunity to do? I think of the kids that we have here uh, on, on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. I, you, take, you take the snottiest-nosed kid, right, that doesn't know how to behave perhaps, uh, that doesn't know the Bible from a dictionary, that's the one that God's going to call and say, you serve me. We don't know, the kids that we're dealing with today, we don't know where they're going to end up in the world. We don't know what they're going to end up doing. See, because God doesn't, he doesn't call the fit, he fits the called. He fits the called. He calls the ones that seem unlikely, improbable, very modest, very out of the way, tucked off in a corner somewhere. God will call them. See, because God doesn't call the great. He takes whoever, and he's great. He does great things through them so that the glory is his, right, and not theirs. So, remember, um, Elizabeth was tucked away for five months, but in the sixth month, the angel comes and speaks to Mary, and then it says at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So she went south. She went from Galilee, from Nazareth, down through Samaria, down to Judea, down to this town where uh, they don't even know where the town is. They have some thoughts, and there's actually a, a church uh, of St. John the Baptist where they think uh, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah live, but nobody's sure. But she went there uh, probably about 70 miles, which is far, but it's not forever, right? She could get there in a relatively short period of time. Even if she walked, she could get there. Um, when, when, when she, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember last week it said that this, this child, this John the Baptist child, would be filled with the Spirit even when he was still in the womb? I wonder if this is the fulfillment of it. When he's only in the womb about six full months and his mother is filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, could the Holy Spirit fill Elizabeth? but stay out of John the Baptist's way? I don't know. Was he already filling John the Baptist and then expanded to a little? Who knows? We don't know. But it's interesting, it's interesting that just six months in the womb and there's the Holy Spirit working, involved. See, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was involved back in Genesis chapter 1, right? The Spirit of God moved over the face of the earth over the face of the waters. And the Holy Spirit is involved here, and the Holy Spirit was involved again, involved in our coming to Christ. So in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaims, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And the knowledge is given to her by the Holy Spirit. She is proclaiming, she is prophesying, speaking out the truth through the power of the Spirit. But why am I so favored, she says. Remember, the angel said that Mary was favored by God. And there's, a, there's some same words here. And she's saying, I'm favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. 
As, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she. Now listen to how she describes Mary. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary, you're blessed because of your faith. Can we have faith? Can we believe that God is going to fulfill his promises to us? Do we cling to the promises of God? I mean, when we wake up in the morning and we start our day, aren't we trusting that, he's, that he exists? That he's somewhere there in heaven, that he's somehow involved in us? When we decide to walk in obedience and, and, and reach out to somebody in love, aren't we trusting that it's because God exists, because he's there, because what he said he's actually going to do, because it actually does matter? See, we go through our day and we might not be thinking about it, but I bet if you checked yourself, there's a lot of faith going on there because the things you're doing, you're doing because you believe that God is. And you believe that what God has said in his word, he's actually going to do. And so it informs your actions and your obedience and your attitude and your activities. So he says to her, she says, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would, there's the word again, fulfill his promises to her. We can have that same faith. See, because Mary didn't have anything. She was a nobody from nowhere with nothing. And basically, in the grand scheme of things, we're nobodies from nowhere with nothing. But we have faith. And God makes us somebody from somewhere with everything. With the Holy Spirit and with the power of God and with the forgiveness that comes through Christ, we are somebody somewhere with everything. Everything that God needs to use to accomplish his will. The littlest thing that we do, God's involved in it. And God takes the littlest things and does the greatest things with it. So at the end of this passage is this thing called the, uh, in Latin, it's called the Magnificat. It's the words that Mary said in response to Elizabeth's prophecy to her. And in this passage from verse 46 to 55, Mary quotes from nine different Psalms. She quotes from Isaiah, she quotes from Genesis, she quotes from Exodus. And and from nine different Psalms, she incorporates that into her declaration here. She says to Elizabeth, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Look what she says. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She's not proclaiming her name, but she's proclaiming God's name. Holy is his name. He's the one who's done great things for me. For his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And then she says this. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. This is where she starts to describe the values and principles of the king. The king being the one who's in her womb, actually. This is when she starts to describe the environment and the heart of the kingdom of the one she carries. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud. God doesn't have any time for the proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But who has he lifted up? The humble. This is the upside-down kingdom part. 
He, li- he raises up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. God's concerned about those who are hungry. But he has sent the rich away empty. We should look at that, honestly, I should look at that and say, he has sent the rich away empty. Are we rich? I mean, I don't even have to finish my sentence and we all know we are, right? I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we're rich. What does it mean when God sends the rich away empty? Riches are relative, right? I mean, I'm rich to some people and I'm poor to other people. But God sends the rich away empty. So I better not trust in my riches. In fact, it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, right, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean for us? We shouldn't just gloss over that, you guys. We shouldn't just gloss over it. We should think about that because we're rich. So apparently it's hard for us to enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be deceptive. We're going to have blinders on to certain things. See, because the kingdom culture is different. It's not like the culture we live in. It's going to take us by surprise. The words and the actions of Jesus subverted the culture of his day. It turned things on their head. It turned things upside down. He's still trying to do that with us. See, no matter what country or culture we're in, we're affected by it. John was sharing with me the other day about in Argentina. Leadership in Argentina is very top-heavy. So what the leader says goes. Get it? Oh. See? See or no? No. (laughs) But in Argentina, what the leader says goes. And he says that in the churches, he was telling me, the leadership structure of the churches reflects that. So the pastor has a lot of authority in the churches. Why is that? Is it because the Bible teaches that? Is it because that's the heart of Jesus, the Savior? When he said, you know, the Gentiles, when there's somebody in authority, they, they lord it over people. And what did Jesus say? It's not to be so among you. It shouldn't be like that with you. So in Argent, we're picking on Argentina now, right? Because that way we don't have to look in the mirror. But in Argentina, the churches are top-heavy with leadership authority. Why? Because that's what the culture is like. There's stuff in our church and in American churches that are the way they are because that's what the culture is like. So here's the hard part. The hard part is discerning discerning the stuff that our culture is like that's okay for us to be that way. It's neither here nor there. It's just cultural. It's okay. And then the stuff that our culture is like that, that Jesus would say, no, no, no. That's not the culture of the kingdom. That's not my heart. So when I read this, he has sent the rich away empty, I think, man, don't we always say we're the, what, richest nation on earth? So if we're like some of the richest believers on the planet, we have to think about that. What am I doing with my riches? Am I, am I like setting myself up so, so I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm comfortable? I want to make sure I've got everything I need and everything's taken care of and everything's okay. You know, in most of world history, people couldn't make sure that everything was okay. There wasn't everything being okay. 
But see, in our culture, there's social security and there's a social safety net and there's all this other stuff. There's 401ks and savings and, you know, we're unusual in the world and we're unusual in world history. So I just challenge us to think about, just as an example, that and comparing our culture with the culture of the king. Because as the body of Christ, we have to reflect the culture of the king. And Jesus said, our riches, when we get our riches, we're not to build bigger barns so that we can have more stuff. But what did he say to the rich young ruler? He, testing him to see if he really meant what he said. He said, well, go ahead and sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. Okay? Oh, you don't want to do that? And he let him walk away. He was sad because he had a lot of wealth. That's a touchy area, isn't it? It's a touchy area. So here's what I challenge me with and you with. What are we trusting in? And how are we showing love to others with what God's given to us? That's an important thing if we claim to be followers of Jesus. It just is. It's important. We have to wrestle with that. So he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now this is little Mary proclaiming the truth of the Old Testament and proclaiming the the, the heart of the king to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And she's realizing that the culmination of the ages is a resident within her. And this is a big deal. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Was she there for the birth? I mean, six months plus three months is nine months. She might have been there to hear Zechariah clear his throat say, his name will be, (coughs) his name will be John. (gasps) He speaks. She might have been there for that. We don't know. Or maybe she scurried away quickly before John the Baptist was born. Did she see an infant form, the one who would cry out, he is coming, he is coming, about the baby in her womb? We don't know. So what's the passage say? What's this say? Well, it says, Mary was a virgin, conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit's work, not through a relationship with a man. That's important. And there are those out there who will say, oh, no, it's not that important. That's really important. It's kind of like everything to the whole story. That God would become man because it shows his love for us and his intentions toward us. Number two, it says God became human. We have the incarnation. That God became man without ceasing to be God. So you have 100% God, 100% man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Number three, God fulfilled his promises to Abraham through Jesus. We've talked about that a lot. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And number four, the kingdom culture is upside down and antithetical to the world's culture, subverting it and overturning it. We see it in the selection of Mary. We see it in the decision of, of God, the Father in heaven, to send an angel to Nazareth. That means that God will come to wherever we are and that God will use any one of us. And we focus on our faults and our weaknesses. We think about our shortcomings. We have a lack of self-confidence, low self-esteem, thinking, oh, God can't use me. When God is saying, no, you're the exact kind of person I want to use. 
I don't use people that are so great. I use just people. I don't call the fit. I fit the called. That's what God does. So what's it mean? Well, that's what it says. What does it mean? The incarnation through a virgin to fulfill God's promises to Israel models values and principles that God desires for his people. That would be us. Those upside-down values and principles, those are our values. So that's our constant That's our constant job, folks. Our constant job is to live in the culture of the kingdom, not in the culture of wherever we happen to be. That's true for everybody all across the world, everywhere. Jesus calls us into a different kingdom, and it's a wonderful kingdom. So how does it affect me? The reality of Mary's magnificent, her words, the reality of Mary's words are coming true in our own lives. We are living out the values of that message. We are living out loving the poor and the, the impoverished, and, and God has an inordinate amount of grace and love and message to the downtrodden and to the oppressed and to the foreigner and to the imprisoned and to the sick to the orphan and to the widow. God talks a lot about them. And when we as a people reach out, we're embodying the heart of the king. That's what it means for us. We're going to keep on rolling. Next week is uh, the birth of John the Baptist. And it's Zechariah's uh, Benedictus. Zechariah actually speaks some words out, and we're going to finish off chapter 1 next week. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the Son of God, of whose kingdom there will be no end. God, I think about as Jesus looked out over the masses, and he saw them, he had great compassion He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. I have come to save sinners. God, give us the heart of the king. Give us the eyes of the king. Give us the vision of King Jesus. That we would look out over our realms, wherever you've put us, our relationships, our neighborhoods, our families, our workplaces, our schools, that we would see the way Jesus sees, that we would be the first to step up and to offer help, the first to share truth, the first to sacrifice our own comfort for the sake of another. God, help us to be the church, the body of Christ. Thank you for coming to Mary who was a nobody from nowhere, but she was so full of faith. Lord, thank you for reaching out to us and making us somebodies. Thank you for allowing us to place our faith in you, our Lord and our Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.